0: Welcome to Liberty Under Law, the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center, a nonprofit organization that exists to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, United States Supreme Court Justice and the Chief United States Prosecutor for the International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg. This podcast explores and examines contemporary and historic issues of equality, fairness and justice with a Jacksonian lens through in-depth conversations with experts, academics, innovators and those doing boots on the ground work. I am your host, Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center. Good morning again. Thank you for being with us. With us for this part of our making the the movement toward a level playing field program today is Brad Snyder, the Anne Fleming Research Professor at Georgetown Law School. Brad teaches constitutional law, constitutional history, and sports law. Prior to teaching, Brad worked as an associate at Williams and Connolly. And wrote two critically acclaimed books about baseball, including the subject of what we're going to talk about today: A Well-Paid Slave, Kurt Flood's Fight for Free Agency in Professional Sports. He is a graduate of Duke University and Yale Law School, and he clerked for the Honorable Dorothy W. Nelson on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. He is the author of the recently published book, Democratic Justice, Felix Frankfurter, The Supreme Court and the making of the liberal establishment. Before we have Brad start with his wonderful presentation and discussion, we have a short video that we are going to play. as a little bit of orientation for our discussion.
1: The legality of Major League Baseball's controversial reserve clause is now in the hands of the Supreme Court. The case involves the trade of Kurt Flood from St. Louis to Philadelphia. That case for Flood is being argued. It was so
2: difficult for the fans to understand my problems with baseball. I was telling my story to deaf ears because I was telling my story to a person who would give their firstborn child to be doing what I was doing. And he just could not understand how there could be anything possibly wrong with baseball.
1: For nearly three years, Kurt Flood had been in the courts fighting a one-man battle with Major League Baseball over the Reserve Clause. Despite the advice of the Players Union, he had left the game in 1969 rather than be traded against
3: his will. What I told him was that I agreed with him in principle, but that the courts had treated players as property and would likely do so again, and that his uh, attempt, while uh, a principled one, was, uh, uh, I thought, doomed to failure. And I worried about his knowing uh, the kinds of chances he was taking, that he was going to end his career uh, in a case that uh, uh, probably was a loser.
1: The lawyers for the major leagues would not talk for the cameras, but in the courtroom they argued that the reserve clause is essential to the future of organized baseball, that without the reserve clause all the rich teams would get all the star players. But Arthur Goldberg maintains that the reserve clause, tying a player to one team for the rest of his life, is in violation of the 13th Amendment. That's the amendment against slavery and indentured servitude. Flood's first trial had been in federal district court in Manhattan in 1970.
3: I think uh, Kurt Flood on the stand was treated miserably by the federal judge. He he almost taunted him. A judge who showed great respect for almost all witnesses who who were white. Um, uh, From the bench, the the judge uh, asked uh, Kurt Flood, uh, this is not as easy as playing center field, is it? Uh, you know, with a sarcastic tone, in the middle of a difficult cross-examination.
1: No active player dared testify on his behalf. Only owner Bill Veck and a handful of retired stars came to Flood's defense.
2: Jackie Robinson walked into the courtroom and there was a hush. He had such a presence that you could hear a pin drop. His hair was white, and he was walking with a cane, but he still had that swagger that Jackie Robinson uh, was so noted for. But he testified in my behalf, and with a soliloquy that would send chills up and down my spine.
1: Flood lost in district court, and then lost again in the Court of Appeals. And on June 18, 1972, by a vote of 5 to 3, The United States Supreme Court ruled against him. Baseball was still exempt from antitrust laws and the reserve clause still stood.
4: I am particularly pleased that the court has recognized the need for a reserve system and has further recognized that baseball has not disregarded the extremely important position the player occupies. Over the long history of baseball, the reserve system has constantly evolved to improve the position of the player. I am confident that this process will continue.
2: We lost because my guys, my colleagues, didn't stand up with me. And I can't make any excuse for them. Had we shown any amount of solidarity, if the superstars had stood up, and said, we're with Kurt Flood. If the superstars had walked into the courtroom in New York and made their presence known, I think that the owners would have gotten the message very clearly and given
1: me a chance to win that. Kurt Flood never played Major League Baseball again.
4: Brad Snyder, author extraordinaire, a well paid slave, Kurt Flood's fight for free agency in professional sports. And I've had the pleasure of listening to you speak in the Supreme Court when the Supreme Court paused to reargue the case in a mock trial format a few years ago, which then led to me getting your book autographed, which I appreciated. And I'm so thrilled that you could join us today on the 50th anniversary of Flood versus Kuhn. And I know uh, there have been other commemorations, but I'm delighted you could take the time today to pause and to to share a little bit about that. Uh, So I wanna thank you, Brad, so much for that. And for those uh, who are watching the camera, Brad was also kind enough last night to uh be interviewed about his uh current book on Felix Frankfurter which has been critically acclaimed by the New York Times and a Wall Street Journal and that's on you or soon to be on YouTube uh, so thank you for all of that you're a rock star and uh but we're here to talk about baseball we're here to talk about uh the Kurt flood experience and sort of the the current state of what is a really a constitutional law aberration where organized baseball, Major League Baseball, still enjoys an exemption from antitrust when other professions call it basketball, football, are not. Unbelievable, but here we are. So uh, I'm going to turn it over to you, Brad. I know you have a a little bit of a presentation, and then we'll pick up some Q&A thereafter. So thank you.
5: I'm a little worse for wear this morning, but uh, you know, I hope you'll, uh, and I wish I could have been there in person. Uh, I I saw the Photos of Robert Jackson arguing at Nuremberg um, behind the podium. And, and uh, I, I wish I could have been standing there. I would have been honored to be there in person. I have a household with the flu, um, but I'm I'm totally willing to go today as long as I, you know, I've got tea here. I'm I'm good to go. So I just I just sound bad. So I, I apologize for that and, and I apologize for not being there um in person. Um, I really it's really that Ken Burns documentary is really important i thought it did went a long way to showing a wide audience who kurt was what his lawsuit was about um and also just how smart he was right how um intellectual he was and and just um, what a deep thinker he was it, it's amazing that that kind of five minute clip you know there there are parts of that five minute clip clip i would quibble with you know because you have to compress things but just Kurt himself narrating his own story and, and, and telling his own story. There was so much um power there. And I uh, and I feel like um, the Ken Burns documentary, as I'll get to at the end, um, went a really long way to rehabilitating Kurt's um reputation and, and was really kind of a high water mark um in Kurt's post-baseball career. So I'm glad he got the public recognition um that went along with that documentary. And i um, really grateful to Ken Burns for doing it. So I just want to sort of back up a second and and try to give people a sense who weren't alive at the time. And I would put myself in that category. Um, I had little idea when I started my, when I was a young sports writer in Baltimore, just how good of a ball player Kurt was. And I think that gets a little lost um, in all of the discussions about lawsuits and exemptions. And, And for those of you who weren't alive then, or who weren't following baseball um, in the 1960s. Kurt Flood was the longest tenured member of the St. Louis Cardinals when he was traded. The Cardinals were a juggernaut. He was um, a seven-time Gold Glove winner. He was a three-time All-Star on teams that, you know, the Cardinals won the World Series in 64 and 67. They lost in 1968 in part because Kurt dropped a fly ball um, late in game seven. But you know, Kurt was on the cover of Sports Illustrated. You may chalk that up to the Sports Illustrated Jinx um, in 1968 as baseball's best center fielder. That's what it the tagline said. There's a um picture of Kurt and um, Wrigley Field going high up against the wall to 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 rob someone of a home run or an extra base hit. And and Kurt was really good. I mean, I guess people from my generation um, who watched baseball in the 80s and 90s, I'd really analogize him to someone like Bernie Williams, who was the center f- fielder for the, you know, Yankees during you know their great championship run. Bernie, I'd say, was a star, but not a superstar. And I'd put Kurt in the same category as a star um, but not a superstar and as the documentary said after the 1969 season on October 7th 1969 just a few days ago from today he was traded to the Philadelphia Phillies and I I, along with Tim McCarver for um, and and the main player coming back was um, Richie Allen and I just want to put in context what getting traded from the Cardinals to being traded to the Philadelphia Phillies was like back then the Cardinals were the best organization um, in MLB at the time and the Phillies were definitely the worst. The Phillies were regarded for black players as a prison sentence uh, as a as a horrible place to go. Um Curtin in his autobiography described Philadelphia as baseball's um, northernmost southern city. And I thought that was pretty apt and and kurt knew that because um, one of his good friends from the Cardinals, Bill White, had been traded to the Phillies and had told um, Kurt how horrible it was. And, and um, the Philadelphia fans gave Richie Allen, uh, one of their star players who was traded for Kurt, a horrible time there. It was the principle of being the longest tenure member of the Cardinals, being treated like a piece of property. But also, it was this idea that, you know, not the general manager didn't even call Kurt that morning on. Uh, October 7th, there was kind of a person mid mid mid-level in the organization who had called him. You know, I think hindsight is 2020, but I think if the Cardinals had said, said to Kurt at the end of the season, Hey, we're going to trade you. Where would you like to go? Um, And and what are your preferred destinations? And Kurt's from the West coast. And if Kurt had said the West coast, um, this whole thing would have, and they had traded him to the Dodgers or the giants um, or or whatever. I think this whole thing would have been avoided. Um, But, but Kurt was blindsided by this. Um, the GM did not call him, you know. Just the backdrop for those who have only lived through the era of free agency. The Major League Baseball standard contract, which every player was forced to sign, said, "We own you for this year, and we own you for next year too, right?" And and so at the end of every season, almost every player would sign a new contract, and before the their only and if the player was traded, that option year, that sort of option, which is called the reserve clause, kicked in for the new team. So the new team owned the player forever and ever. And before the 1969 season, I think what really got Kurt traded was not dropping the fly ball and after the 68 World Series. But um, before the 69 season, Kurt had held out for more money. He, he wanted $100,000, which was superstar money back in 1969. And um. He um, stayed away from spring training, which is a player's only leverage in those days. Most of them, almost all of them, did not have agents. They negotiated directly with the club, and so Kurt stayed away from spring training and held out, and eventually settled with the Cardinals for ninety thousand dollars. But it left a lot of bad blood between Kurt and between the owner of the Cardinals, who he had enjoyed a good relationship with, Gussie Bush, and um, and then Kurt had a down year, nineteen sixty nine. He batted. 285, which was a down year for him, be a great, great year in this day and age, but a down year for him. And he was traded, and but he refused to go. And um, Marvin Miller tells part of the story, but on the Burns documentary, but it really doesn't tell what I found fascinating, what made me want to write the book. When Kurt goes to Miller, first he goes to a St. Louis attorney who who was handling some of his business affairs and had handled his divorce. Um, Alan Zerman and Zerman advises him to go see Mar- Marvin Miller and when he goes to see Marvin Miller, Marvin says, this lawsuit is a million to one shot. And even if this million to one shot comes home, you're never going to see a dime. Because all those contracts were legal at the time. And the only way people who will benefit will will, will be prospectively. And Kurt said, will this benefit future players if I win? And Miller said, yes, it will. And, And and Kurt said, that's good enough for me. And and it was that kind of altruism was kind of the puzzle that I had in writing this book. What makes somebody who's just been advised by Miller um, to give up his entire career? And he had a good two or three years left with the Phillies. He probably left $250,000 at least on the table with Philadelphia over the course of those three years. And I say at least because Philadelphia um, offered him over $100,000. Um to come to Philly. And Kurt said no. And I just wanted to know what made Kurt want to do this. And, you know, the short answer, I think, is the civil rights movement. And 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 his, you know, Kurt's from Oakland, California. He played for a multiracial American Legion team of Asians, African Americans, and white players. And um, you know, when he goes to spring training with the Cincinnati Reds, his first team in um 1956. I'm um, in Florida, and um, tries to get in a white cab, and they shoe him into a black cab, and he shows up at the white hotel, and they send him over to the boarding house with the other black players. That starts this culture shock of Jim Crow that he experiences for the first time. That continues during the 1956 season, um, in the minor leagues, um, in High Point, in Thomasville, um, is, is a is a city, um, in North Carolina, and in the Carolina League, and. And even though Kurt was the Carolina Player of the Year, um, he wanted to go home. He wanted to quit. Things were so bad um, in terms of not being able to eat with his teammates, not being able to sleep in the same place as his teammates, uh, not even be able, not to be able to um, you know, do a lot of basic things that one would want to do, and just a lot of racism as one of the few black players in the Carolina League. And the next year he played in Savannah in the Sally League, and it was even worse um, than the Carolina League. And so, you know, and then, you know, these, that really kind of, and I don't want to say radicalized Kurt, but really sensitized him to injustice. And and he gets traded with the, to the, to the Cardinals after um, his 1947 season in the Sally League, because the the Reds have too many black players. They have Veda Pinson and Frank Robinson, both of whom um, Kurt went to high school with for a while at McClyman's High in Oakland. And um, they weren't going to have an all-black outfield in Cincinnati, so they trade him to car- the Cardinals um, for nothing, basically. And in St. Louis, Kurt, again, was really sensitized to injustice, even though he wasn't an everyday player at the time. Um, he and, and Bill White and others protested the idea that the Cardinals were having spring training in St. Petersburg and their team hotel, would not allow black players, and Kurt and Bill White... Um, And Bob Gibson, um, we're staying at a boarding house, right, you know, separated from the rest of the players. And the Cardinals responded by buying that team hotel. Um, Before the 1962 season, Kurt's idol, Jackie Robinson, invites him to come to Mississippi um, to speak at an NAACP rally. They're they're followed by the um, Mississippi Secret Police. Their host is Medgar Evers, who, you know, a few months later is shot in the back and murdered um, by a Klansman. And then after he wins the World Series with the Cardinals in 1964, he tries. Had been separated with his wife, but they um, remarried. Or I think he got divorced, and then he remarried his first wife. And they try to settle in Walnut Creek, California, in the Bay Area, and they rent a house in an upscale white neighborhood. And they're threatened with a shotgun, and the the owner of the house says, "If you move into this house, I'm going to shoot you down." And K- Kirk gets you know a court order and armed police protection, and moves into the house with the television cameras rolling. And so, you know, it's not surprising if you knew Kurt's history in the minor leagues with the Spring Training Hotel in Mississippi with Jackie Robinson. And in 1964, I'm in Alamo, California, why Kurt sued uh, Major League Baseball. Um, The the first people he really had to convince in 1969 were the other players. And the the, um, MLBPA, and, and let me just back up. Right, Marvin Miller is the head of the Major League Baseball Players Union. He is not a lawyer, he's a former economist with the Steelworkers Union. But this is really ill timed for Miller. He had just taken over in 1967. Kurt in 1969 um, comes to him and says, I want to sue Major League Baseball over the um, reserve clause. Um, Miller's a strategist, and he doesn't want this now. He has only negotiated one collective bargaining agreement, the 1968 basic agreement. Um, And that basic agreement, um, the big thing that Miller got, the the players was an increase in the pension fund. So this was really a nascent union. The players were not united, as Kurt said in the video. There was not a lot of solidarity. There was a lot of skepticism when Kurt goes to to Puerto Rico um, in, in the winter of 1969, to, to try to persuade the player representatives that the Players Association should fund his lawsuit. There was a stellar group of ball players from veterans to rookies in that room. Um, one of the veterans was Roberto Clemente. One of the um, you know, younger players was Reggie Jackson. And, and um, one, of the, um, one of the most important questions came from Tom Haller, a catcher for the Giants. And he said, is this a black power thing? And Kurt said, no, this is a player's rights thing. And that won over all the players' representatives. Kurt's sincerity won over the players' representatives, and they voted unanimously to fund Kurt's lawsuit in exchange for being able to pick Kurt's counsel. And that's an important point that I'm going to come back to um, in a few minutes. So um, the Players Association agrees to fund the lawsuit, even though it's not good timing for Miller, even though he's about to negotiate the 1970 basic agreement, and yet they go forward. And what they go forward with is this letter. And I I know you probably can't read it, um, but I'm going to read it for you. It's dated December 24th, 1969. Um, It's um, written to Bowie Kuhn, the commissioner of baseball. You saw him at the end of that clip. Um, And and Kurt writes, after 12 years in the major leagues, I do not feel that I'm a piece of property to be bought and sold irrespective of my wishes. I believe that any system which produces that result violates my basic rights as a citizen and is inconsistent with the laws of the United States and of the several states. It is my desire to play baseball in 1970, and I am capable of playing. I have received a contract offer from the Philadelphia club, but I believe I have the right to consider offers from other clubs before making any decisions. I therefore request that you make known to all the major league clubs my feelings in this matter and advise them of my availability for the 1970 season. Sincerely, Kurt Flood. And and that um that letter is... Um, CC to Marvin Miller and to John Quinn, the GM of the Phillies, that puts Bowie Kuhn on notice. Um, Bowie Kuhn replies and said, "Go jump in a lake." Basically, you know, you're bound by your contract, and that says that um, Philadelphia owns you for this year and next year too. And and Kurt can't um, negotiate with any other team. Kurt's legal team responds by filing a lawsuit, um, in the Southern District of New York and Lower Manhattan, and they make they have um really um three claims, but the major claim is about um, the Sherman Antitrust Act. And because this is a CLE, um, I want to get into some law. Just to remind people, um, there are really two types of cases under the Sherman Act. There's a Section 1 case um, that prohibits any contract combination or conspiracy or restraint of trade that affects commerce among the federal several states. There's also a kind of Section 2 claim, which is um, when you're um, so big, basically, um, that you uh, have um, cornered the market, essentially, and Kurt's claim was really about section one um, of the Sherman Act. Um, it was really saying that what the reserve clause was, was a conspiracy among um, the major league teams to refuse to deal in in, in the in the parlance of um, antitrust law. Um, it was a group boycott, right? The owners had gotten together and all said, um, "We none of us are going to bid on Kurt's services, um, only Philadelphia is allowed. Now, under normal um, antitrust law, um, that's a per se violation of the antitrust laws. It's kind of a slam dunk. The reserve clause is is a slam dunk antitrust violation on which Major League Baseball would have been liable for treble damages. Now, most sports cases since 1984 have been judged under rule of reason, which is the restraint of trade has to be found to be unreasonable. That's a, a more flexible standard. But I think, even under the a rule of reason analysis, um, Major League Baseball on the merits um, would have lost because the reserve clause was seen as a perpetual option, a lifetime ownership of Kurt's services. And that wasn't the least restrictive means um, of achieving the competitive balance um, that Major League Baseball um, was claiming um, that it, it needed um, from the reserve system. So, on the merits, Kurtz case is a slam dunk. But as Marvin Miller pointed out, this really was a million to one shot. And the problem was really jurisdictional. If you look at section one of the Sherman Act, it says that contract combination or conspiracy in restraint of trade must affect commerce among the several states. That means um, it has to violate, it has to be um, something um, that um, is interstate commerce. Right, so so the question is really a jurisdictional one. Can Kurt sue Major League Baseball in federal court under the Sherman Act? And um, we the and there are there are two prior cases from the Supreme Court on point that say no, and they're a little bit misunderstood, right? They're a little bit misunderstood. Um, the first case um called Federal Baseball um was written um, by Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. and I apologize for the. Um, somewhat disrespectful um, stat, um, caption, but um, I have law students, and I need to um, interest them in, in these opinions. I just think that Oliver Wendell Holmes had one of the great mustaches of all time, and this is proof positive. But this case involved the Baltimore team from the Federal League, which was was a rival league or a quote unquote um, third major league in the second decade of the twentieth century. Um, they had had merged; the, the Federal League teams had agreed to a merger. Um, with the major leagues. Um, the owner of the Federal League team, the Chicago Whales, actually owned the stadium that became um, Wrigley Field. But they left the Baltimore team, the Baltimore Terrapins, out of the merger. The Baltimore Terrapins sued in federal court under the Sherman Act and won. They sued for $80,000 in damages, which were tripled um, to $240,000. That was reversed by the D.C. Circuit um, because they said that Major League Baseball was still sport and not trade. They did not even get to the interstate commerce point. They said it was sport and not trade, right? So if I go back to my previous slide, contract combination or conspiracy in restraint of trade, right? Well, there's no trade there, according to the DC circuit. Now, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr.'s unanimous opinion was different. It was more interested in, in the question on whether the Federal League was suing under the properly suing of the Sherman Act on whether there was A, in inter in whether the commerce was A, interstate, and B, whether it was commerce at all, right? So those are two different questions. Um, In 1922, what does Holmes say? One of the misunderstandings of federal baseball is that it exempted Major League Baseball from the Sherman Act. It really didn't. It didn't. It not, does not say that. All it says is that as of 1922, Major League Baseball, as constituted, was not baseball. They were consisted of a series of exhibitions that were not interstate. It's he said the the business is giving exhibitions of baseball, which are purely state affairs and the travel to those different cities for those games. The transport was mere incident and not the essential thing. Right. Home. So he said, first, it's not interstate. Holmes's opinions were very short and they're, this one was super cryptic. Um, And he's, but he said also it's not trader commerce, right? He says, uh, although um, they make money, um, it would not be called trader commerce in the common, it should be in the commonly accepted use of the words. Um, As it is put by defendants, personal effort not related to production is not a subject of commerce. Basically, um, the labor is not commerce. And his examples, and this is great for this crowd. Um, he, he, he analogized um, baseball players traveling to different cities as a firm of lawyers traveling to argue a case. Um, or, and this is great for Jamestown, New York, um, the Chautauqua Bureau sending out lectures you know, to different cities. He says that's not interstate commerce either. So I just want to be clear that Holmes did not say base, Major League Baseball was exempt for all time. All he's saying was that Major League Baseball, as of 1922, was not interstate commerce. And that's because of the Supreme Court's own decisions. There's a case of a famous case um, about um, a federal child labor law in Hammer versus Dagenhart, um, which said manufacturing was not commerce, right? The definition of of interstate commerce um, was really limited at that time. It was limited to the idea of trade. And so um, the notion of interstate commerce is super narrow. And if you don't believe me, you can read Kevin McDonald in the Journal of Supreme Court History. Kevin McDonald is an, is an expert antitrust lawyer. Uh, was at Jones Day. Uh, he may be um, emeritus now um, at Jones Day, but he he wrote this article proving this. And and the real proof was in a case Holmes wrote in 1923 involving vaudeville and vaudeville tried. You know, they tried to get um, this kind of same quote unquote exemption um, about whether vaudeville was subject to interstate commerce. And, and Holmes said he, he kind of rejected. Um, this analogy between baseball and vaudeville, and his only point in that vaudeville case, it's called Hart. Um, a year after Federal Baseball, was that Major League Baseball, as of 1922, um, just didn't satisfy the definition of interstate commerce. That over time, based on factual circumstances, baseball could fit into that definition if the business evolved. So, the this um this left this very open ended about whether baseball had an exemption. Um, in 1949 was the next really big challenge. Um, and, and this is in your packet. For those of you who want to follow along, the case was Gardella versus Chandler. Danny Gardella um, was kind of a fringe um, outfielder who had jumped to the Mexican League and, and to, for more money. And for jumping to the Mexican League, he was blacklisted by the commissioner. I think it was um, Happy Chandler at the time. And he sued Major League Baseball under the Sherman Act. And um, the trial court dismissed the claim on jurisdictional grounds. But two rock stars of the um, Second Circuit Court of Appeals, um, Learned Hand and Jerome Frank, were on the panel. And they um, reversed and remanded to see if baseball satisfied the more expanded definition of interstate commerce as post-1937. Because as you know, the Supreme Court R- dramatically expanded its concept of interstate commerce um, during the New Deal constitutional crisis and upheld a bunch of Roosevelt's um, New Deal programs and overruled Hammer versus and Dagenhart's um, limited def- definition of, of interstate commerce. And uh, I'm pretty sure on reman, Danny Gardella would have won his case, but instead he settled. You know, Major League Baseball knew that it was going to lose at trial and lose This quote-unquote exemption, it settled with Gardella for sixty thousand dollars. That was a lot of money. And um, Jerome Judge Learned Hand didn't really opine um, on the reserve clause, but Jerome Frank, um, in a concurring opinion or in his opinion, um, equated the reserve clause with slavery, and that's how we get this idea of a well-paid slave and equating this with slavery, and and um, suggested it might even violate the Thirteenth Amendment. Harry Blackman, when we get to Flood versus Kuhn, ignores this case altogether. And ignores two legal giants in learned hand and and jerome frank and their opinion on this issue the next big event occurs two years later when a, a, a congressman um, emmanuel seller um, from new york holds hearings um, in the house subcommittee on monopoly power to study whether major league baseball should be subject to the antitrust laws a bunch of people testified um a big report was written and and as of that moment congress hadn't done anything, hadn't passed legislation exempting Major League Baseball, or um, saying that baseball should be subject to the Sherman Act. That gets us to the next big case um, involving, and really where the exemption starts is right here, right? The exemption starts here um, in a case um, involving a a minor league pitcher who's stuck in the New York Yankees farm system, and and his name is George Earl Toulson. And, And Toulson sues Major League Baseball, and there's a couple other companion cases involved um, with Toolsing's case. The court grants certiorari in that case, right? The court is at a weird kind of inflection point in 1953. Earl Warren's brand new Chief Justice to the Supreme Court of the United States, he was um, nominated to the court as a recess appointee, which means he um, had not been confirmed by the United States Senate. Um, he was so new to the court that Hugo Black was serving as the acting chief justice um, because, you know, Earl Warren had not had any prior judicial experience, had never argued before the Supreme Court of the United States. He was still really getting his feet wet. And um, the court hears oral argument in the case, and they decide um, to decide the case in a per curiam opinion. And they completely misread federal baseball, right? They say... It's a one-paragraph decision. It should be in your packet. And it says, without re that It begins. Their procuring begins, and it was a, a re- initially drafted by um, by Hugo Black. And it says, without re-examination of the underlying issues. Well, let's just stop right there. That's exactly what Holmes wanted people to do. Holmes wanted people to re-examine the underlying issues based on the facts of Major League Baseball, right? And and based on the deaf the current definition of major of interstate commerce, which had been dramatically expanded post-1937. And given that you have um, radio and the minor leagues and, you know, the beginnings of television, right? You know, it, it, there, there's a much better argument that Major League Baseball is interstate commerce, but Tulson misreads federal baseball by not re-examining the underlying issue and by relying on stare decisis, and then it adds a line at the insistence of Earl Warren that really makes a mockery of federal baseball, where it says, We haven't re examined federal baseball, but but we're gonna say that the in, according to federal baseball, here's what Congress has intended. So far as that decision, federal baseball determines that Congress had no intention of including the business of baseball within the scope of the federal antitrust laws. This sentence in effect creates the exemption because it ascribes um, an intent to Congress in passing the Sherman Act um, in the 1890s of intending to exclude baseball. First of all, federal baseball did not say that. Second of all, the Sherman Act's legislative history has no evidence of that. So they are an ascribing to an, an intent to the Sherman Act that does not exist um, in, a, in, I think, was a very poor attempt to get Congress to act, but that addition of congressional intent created this idea of an express exemption for baseball. So far as that decision, federal baseball determines that Congress had no intention of including the business of baseball within the scope of the federal antitrust laws. That's the beginning of the exemption right there in 1953. Now, if they had followed the law on the interstate, on the definition of interstate commerce, if they had read federal baseball properly, um, the court should have held that Major League Baseball um, was um, subject to the Sherman Act, like everything else. Um, th- that, uh, like everything else, but they didn't, and that's where the court um, really fouled up and made a wrong turn and sort of stepped in it. And then there was one justice who I would regard as I've told Greg before. as one of the most underrated justices ever to sit on the Supreme Court of the United States, Justice Harold Burton issued a dissent in the case. And he says, what are you guys doing? He says, look at the radio, look at television, look at farm systems. uh, Those things make baseball seem way more like interstate commerce in 1953 than in 1922. I'm... I'm doing exactly what Oliver Wendell Holmes told us to do. The House Subcommittee said baseball was interstate commerce. The Seller Committee, and all Federal Baseball said was baseball was not interstate commerce in 1922. Not that it was exempt for all time. This is the proper reading of Federal Baseball, and only Harold Burton gets it right. And and he cites as proof the Vaudeville case, that hard case, that it was only based on that definition at the time, and says, you know, look, this is um, within. Congress's power under the interstate commerce to investigate MLB. Of course, this is interstate commerce. Well, they should have listened to Harold Burton because the court gets itself in a box in a bunch of future cases. Because lo and behold, after they exempt baseball, all these sports come calling for similar exemptions. Boxing, which is, you know, besides baseball in the first half of the 20th century, the most watched um, professional sport, says um, we should be exempt too. And the court says, no, boxing is not exempt from any trust law. Um, it says federal baseball and Toulson don't apply. Well, finally, Felix Frankfurter kind of wakes up. And Frankfurter's not a sports fan. But he says, I don't see a lick of difference between baseball and boxing. So why are we exempting baseball but not boxing? Well, he's totally right. He's just should have woken up um, in 1953 and joined Harold Burton's dissent. But he didn't. And then it gets even messier. In a case called Radovich, um, involving um, a lineman named Bill Radovich, whose picture you see here, in 1957, the Supreme Court says, hey, football's not exempt either. And it calls um, in a decision, I think by Justice Clark, I could be wrong about that. I'm, I'm talking off the top of my head. It says the baseball exemption is unrealistic, inconsistent, and illogical. And But it does not apply to any other sport. Well, Some very smart lawyers, um, when the Braves moved from Milwaukee um, to Atlanta, and and they tried to stop it, they said, okay, we're going to take the the Supreme Court of the United States at its word, and um, if baseball's not interstate commerce, then it has to be interstate commerce. We're going to sue under the state antitrust laws. And the Wisconsin Supreme Court said, hey, those state antitrust laws are preempted by this baseball exemption under the Sherman Act. Some of those Wisconsin Supreme Court justices lost their seat on the court for so ruling because the Braves left for Milwaukee. Now, um, right before Kurt's case, there were two important legal developments. Um, There was a case involving the umpires. Um, Two umpires were fired for incompetence, but really for trying to unionize. And they sued the American League under the antitrust laws. And Judge Henry Friendly, another just an absolute judicial superstar, along with um, Jerome Frank and Learned Hand, um, wrote in a famous opinion. He called federal baseball not one of Justice Holmes's happiest days, and he would not fall out of his chair if the Supreme Court overruled it. Um, but it was not up to the Second Circuit, even friendly though. Really mis- misread federal baseball as creating an exemption when it didn't. He should have been taking aim at Toolson. And then in 1971, while Kurt's case is pending. Spencer Haywood applies to um, William O. Douglas as the circuit justice for the Ninth Circuit. And Douglas says, hey, basketball's not exempt either. And the NBA draft violates the antitrust laws and the rules on draft eligibility. So you've got a trend and a moment where there's a chance the court might overrule Toulson, but, but sort of unlikely. I think it's a long shot. And the weird thing about Kurt's case when it progresses through the courts is Any federal judge who'd kind of studied federal jurisdiction would know that the court didn't have jurisdiction to hear the case, and that um, if the court doesn't have federal jurisdiction, then you dismiss the case. No trial, no discovery, dismissal. Well, there was no discovery in Kurt's case, but it did go to trial because their trial judge, Irving Ben Cooper, was a total publicity hound. And he brought in all these celebrities on both sides. And as the Burns documentary showed, Bill Vec, Jackie Robinson, Hank Greenberg, and Jim Brosnan, um, all former players and executives at the time, um, testified in favor of Kurt, uh, but a parade of witnesses testified against him and, and against this idea um, that the reserve that baseball um was was interstate commerce or that on the merits whether the reserve clause um violated. Um, the antitrust laws, all things that Irving Ben Cooper shouldn't have been discussing because he didn't have jurisdiction. And then he dismisses the case after the trial, citing federal baseball. The Second Circuit affirms. Kurt, during this process, has sat out the 1970 season. During this trial, and this is really important, Marvin Miller is negotiating the new Major League Baseball Collective Bargaining Agreement, the 1970 Basic Agreement. And that's really key. And I'm going to get back to that in a minute, I promise. But just keep that in mind. So Kurt does something in 1971 that the Burns documentary kind of glosses over, but I think was one of two, several big mistakes in his case. The first was something Kurt did allude to in the documentary. No current players showed up in New York during Kurt's trial to show support for him. None. Even though you know you had team, you know the Mets and the Yankees players coming into town constantly, you could have had players showing up in that courtroom showing their solidarity, and their, they didn't. I don't know if it would have made a difference, um, but it was certainly from a public relations standpoint, um, where um, much of the media was against Kurt's lawsuit. Um, I think this would have gone a long way to show um, that Kurt wasn't out there on his own. Marvin Miller admitted this was the huge strategic mistake. Another huge um, strategic mistake was. Um, Kurt made an aborted comeback um, in 1971 with the Washington Senators, and um, he was in dire financial straits. His outside photography business was going bankrupt. He owed um, back child support and alimony. Um, he was he needed to really um, declare bankruptcy, and he couldn't um, because his biggest asset was this lawsuit, and he had promised the players um, in Puerto Rico that he would see it through to the end. And so he doesn't declare bankruptcy and instead he makes this comeback with the senators and Kurt's lawyers um, get an agreement with MLB that this won't moot the lawsuit, but it made the case seem moot. And from an optics standpoint, when Kurt comes back for only a couple of weeks and then leaves for Mallorca, Spain, it made his his case seem somewhat moot or, or, or irrelevant. And I think had Kurt still been sitting out in 1971 and 1972, I think um, there would have been more gravity um, to the whole thing. Uh, he would have looked more like cop Callan Kaepernick, just to make a modern um, example, as somebody who was blackballed by the sport. Um, so Kurt has left for Spain. The Supreme Court shocks everyone by granting certiorari, right? The reason why it's shocking, um, if There is no jurisdiction um, to hear the case under the Sherman Act. Um, The path of least resistance for the Supreme Court, if it wants to just let the lower court decision stand, is simply to deny certiorari, but the court doesn't do that. It grants cert, so you think the the court might rule in Kurt's favor. And Kurt's team thinks he has an ace in the hole um, in his advocate. Kurt's counsel, chosen by Marvin Miller, this was Marvin Miller's second error, um, was um, his choice of counsel, um, was Arthur Goldberg, the former Supreme Court justice. Um, he um, was, uh, he had gotten to know Miller when Goldberg was the general counsel of the Steelworkers Union and a first-rate labor law advocate. Let me say that right then and there. Um, Goldberg had, had participated in the argument in, in the steel seizure case, where Justice Jackson wrote his famous opinion. He was a first-rate advocate at one time. Um, he then um becomes John F. Kennedy Secretary of Labor and succeeds um in 1962, succeeds Felix Frankfurter on the Supreme Court, but leaves after just three years. Um, because um Lyndon Johnson, who's now president, persuades Goldberg to become the ambassador of the United Nations because he promises to Goldberg if he becomes ambassador to the United Nations, that he'll be able to end the Vietnam War, that Johnson um in 65 wants to end the war and that Goldberg will get all the credit. And then Goldberg could launch his own political career. And Goldberg has a huge ego. He believes Johnson. He becomes the ambassador of the UN, and um, as we know, um, does not end the Vietnam War. He he after um, in he serves in the Johnson administration, then becomes a partner at Paul Weiss in New York City. And um before he agrees to become Kurt's counsel, Miller's read in the paper that Goldberg's thinking about running for governor of New York. And they go way back, and Miller says. To Goldberg, he says, "Hey, um, are you you can't run for governor of New York and be Kurt's counsel." And Goldberg promises that he's not running for governor of New York, and he breaks that promise, runs anyway, loses. It's really distracted during much of Kurt's trial and appeal, certainly during the trial, and likewise, he doesn't really prepare for his Supreme Court ar- ad- argument, his first time appearing back at the Supreme Court since he was one of the justices, and he really freezes. He almost like has a mental moment where he gets stage fright, and he starts reciting the facts, um, almost like a feedback loop. It was a disastrous um, oral argument. Before I play a little bit of that oral argument, Greg, I know I'm almost an hour in, but I want to play some argument, and I'm and, and and talk for a little bit longer, but I want to just tell you what the arguments are. Their first argument for Flood's legal team is that the Sherman Act applies because in 1969, baseball is interstate commerce because of radio, TV, the minor leagues, etc. Their second argument is that the Reserve Clause violates the 13th Amendment. Now, I know the reporter in that clip in the Burns documentary mentioned that, it's standing outside the Supreme Court, but they dropped that claim after their Second Circuit appeal. So that, that claim is not before the justices of the United States Supreme Court. And their third claim, which is really their hard argument, and the one that the justices are really struggling with, is hey, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Either baseball's interstate commerce or it's interstate commerce. And if it's interstate commerce, then the state antitrust laws apply. And they also included state antitrust claims. That's a hard argument for the court to get around, right? It's either interstate or interstate. Pick one. Either way, we win. Major League Baseball's arguments are super fascinating. Their main argument is this is a labor issue and not an antitrust issue. And therefore, it's exempt under what today we call the non statutory labor exemption. And that's um, a very complicated way of saying that if you're in a labor union and you agree to a collective bargaining agreement, you can't then turn around and sue under the antitrust laws. Can't have bo- Have it both ways. And, and that's a hard argument for the court, and that's kind of a new-ish argument. Um, there is a Yale Law Journal article published in 1971 that's co-authored by Ralph Winter, who's a Yale Law professor and future Second Circuit Justice, who said that all sports unions should not be allowed to sue under the, attra- under the antitrust laws under this non-statutory labor exemption idea. Now, they would respond to the state law, antitrust law argument by saying that any state antitrust claims are preempted by the Sherman Act or violate the Dormant Commerce Clause. I can get to that in a little bit. Their third argument is stare decisis, which means let the decision stand. And they say, look, Major League Baseball has a lot of reliance interests um, on its exemption, the development of the minor leagues, franchise relocation. They've invested a lot of money um, in in the minor leagues and in in in, in their stadia, and you know that they can't um, lose the exemption, and even in, in developing the players themselves. Um, and, and then I think their last argument is that Congress has not acted um, since Tulson to remove the exemption. And and I'll talk about that one too. That one um, is the weakest of all the arguments, and oddly, um, the one that the Supreme Court chooses. Let me go to the oral argument real quick. Um, I just want to play first a colloquy between Justice Brennan and Arthur Goldberg, and they're really good friends, right? Go, Brennan and Goldberg were friends, and um, Brennan, Goldberg's rambling on about the facts, and Brennan asked him a really important question about this idea of whether a union should be able to sue under the antitrust laws. Let me just play this short clip.
4: your condition be any different? No. And I shall discuss that when I come to the labor exemption. I
3: hope you're going to get that argument. I will move back uh, because of the shortness of time. We have these three problems.
5: Now, listen, I know I have a bunch of lawyers in this room. When a Supreme Court justice asks you a question at oral argument and you say, and I'll put the language up there, no, and I shall get that when I come, when I come to the labor exemption. You've just, your fr- friend has teed up the other side's best argument and wants a response to it. And you don't get that. And you say, I hope, and then Brennan says, I hope you're going to get to that. And Goldberg says, I will move fast in the courtroom, laughs. That shows you in, in how much trouble Goldberg is in um, before the Supreme Court of the United States. Um, just, just a, a really a, a world of trouble, and and the the advocates on the other side are just excellent for Major League Baseball. Lou Hoynes um, was thirty six years old. He was the general, the counsel for the National League. He's arguing his first Supreme Court case, and he does a, a an amazing job of pressing this labor exemption issue. And I I want to play um, a clip of that if you'll bear with me in getting getting to. Um, what this question, okay? Um, let me let me just try to do that real quick here. Thurgood Marshall is giving Lou Hoyne's business. and and really, Thurgood Marshall's point in questioning is he really thinks that the union is not acting in Kurt's best interest. And I'm not sure Marshall's right, but he, you know, Thurgood Marshall's former law clerk is Ralph Winner, the law professor who's has written this article on the labor exemption in the yellow law journal, and so he's got a lot of questions about this. And l- let me just play this clip for you, because um, I think it's r- a really good example of uh, of Hoines's advocacy um, vis-a-vis Thurgood Marshall.
4: And wouldn't you say under reserve clause there was no room for bargaining? No, I, I certainly would not say that. I would say that the reserve clause itself, the very core of the reserve clause, is a subject admitted by both sides, a mandatory subject of bargaining, and something about which bargaining was going on when. Interrupted by the tendency the filing of this lawsuit. And it is back to that forum, Your Honor, that we believe this matter should be remitted. You mean back to the union? Back to the collective bargain, the bar- the bargaining table, Your
3: Honor, yes.
5: Well, look, that's a really important point, and that really encapsulates MLB's case. MLB is saying, look, this is a labor issue, not a, any trust issue. We can be reasonable. They even put their money where their mouth was during the negotiations of the 1970 basic agreement. They um, gave the the players grievance arbitration, and that is the ability to file grievances um, before independent arbitrators, not the commissioner, independent arbitrators. And that proved to be incredibly important. So I, I just want to keep in mind that Major League Baseball's point here is, is that this is a labor issue, not an antitrust issue. Now, that wouldn't really control franchise relocation or even the minor leagues because the minor league players aren't unionized at the time. So Hoynes recognized he was walking a tightrope, but that was really the thrust of their argument, which was really hard for the court to deal with. Here's what happened at conference. Here are the votes. So I just want to go down the list because I think it helps to, to visualize it. Chief Justice Berger votes for Flood. William O. Douglas votes for Flood. Brennan votes for Flood. Potter Stewart votes for NLB. Byron White votes for MLB. Thurgood Marshall votes for MLB after really hammering Lou Hoynes. Harry Blackman votes for MLB. Lewis Powell votes for Flood, but stay tuned on that vote. And William Rehnquist votes for MLB. This is a five to four case initially in favor of MLB. A good argument. By Flood's advocate before the Supreme Court of the United States, might have persuaded one of the justices to change votes. Indeed, a lot of stuff happened after this conference, after the oral argument. The first thing that happened was Lewis Powell recused himself after oral argument because he owned Anheuser-Busch stock. Anheuser-Busch owns the St. Louis Cardinals. And Lewis Powell had promised at his confirmation hearings after some some of Richard Nixon's other judicial nominees had gotten in trouble for owning stock in cases that they sat on as appellate judges. He said, I'll recuse myself in any case in which I own stock. He recuses himself. So it's now five to three for MLB. But a crazy thing happens. When the opinion gets circulated, Thurgood Marshall switches his vote to flood. It's now five to four. It's deadlocked. And the assignment goes like this. I'm going back to this slide because the senior justice in the majority, as you see, is the fourth most senior justice. It's Potter Stewart. And he assigns the case um, to one of the newer justices on the court, to Harry Blackman, right? And so Blackman's writing the decision. And when Blackman circulates, it's now four four when he circulates. He needs a fifth vote and he gets it from his childhood friend the Chief Justice, Warren Berger, they were childhood friends in Minneapolis, St. Paul. Um, Blackman was the best man in Berger's wedding. They were um, called the Minnesota Twins, right? But Blackman's opinion was an embarrassment. It was. It starts with this ode to baseball, um, you know, citing Casey at the bat. And, and he really, in writing the opinion, obsesses over this list of baseball greats that he compiles from books. Um, such as um the glory of their times, and the law clerks kind of make fun of him, suggesting different names of great players. and and the opinion, that first part of the opinion, such an embarrassment that Byron White and I think William Rehnquist refused to join part one. Uh, it's almost unheard of for a justice's opinion for someone to not join the facts. And um, here's what Blackman says in the decision. Blackman concedes that Major League Baseball is interstate commerce. And, um, and, and the question has to be, well, why, if you can see the Major League Baseball is interstate commerce, do the antitrust laws not apply? Well, first he says, because of stare decisis, right? Uh, but, but the second reason might be because of problems with retroactivity. Well, that's easily solved. You could make the decision prospective, right? But the third reason is really crazy. And and that's he says, because of Congress's, and this is a direct quote, positive inaction. This is up to Congress to fix. Anyone who knows anything about statutory interpretation is that Congress's default mode is not to do anything. And that you can't interpret a federal law based on Congress's inaction, right? Because that's its default position. And you know, if you look at Congress's inaction, there were a lot of bills in Congress between 1950 and 1972 to exempt all four major professional sports. And those bills didn't pass either. So that argument really is a red herring. And, and that's what what Blackman bases his decision on, Congress's positive inaction. It's a really bad argument. He spent very little time developing the reasoning for that. And then lastly, he rejects flood state antitrust law claims if Major Major League Baseball was interstate commerce. Um, he says um, they would violate the dormant commerce clause, and that's the idea of of a, a state law interfering with interstate commerce in the absence of a correct congressional law. But that doesn't really make sense either, because if baseball is interstate commerce, then the Sherman Act should apply, and there is a federal law on point. So it's either it should be preempted; it shouldn't be um, the dormant commerce clause, a- and then on this idea of the labor exemption, Blackman kind of punts, right? So there was some language in the reserve in in the collective bargaining agreement that sort of um, accepted the reserve clause from that collective bargaining agreement. And therefore, the court really didn't know what to do with that argument and just kind of punts on it. Now, Thurgood Marshall, in his dissent, he goes from in the majority to dissenting, says this is a hard case, right? And he's correct to say the court doesn't often overrule amidst self on cases of federal statutory interpretation, but um, Toolson was dead wrong. He said our, our remedy could be prospective. He said starry decisis alone is not a good reason to keep federal baseball, and he would um, remand the case to the trial court to see if 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 they're exempt from federal law only on the issue of whether the reserve clause had been collectively bargained, if it was part of the 1970 basic agreement. So he's really interested in this labor exemption issue, and he would remand on that. I just want to point out one thing. The Brethren, that book by Bob Woodward and Scott Armstrong, claims that Thurgood Marshall objected to Blackman's list of great baseball greats um, because there were no Black players on the list, and that Blackman had left out Satchel Paige um, and a few others, and that Marshall made him include them. Um, Well, that's hogwash, um, because at least the drafts in Blackman's papers Show that the black players um, were in there from the get-go, um, so that's um, at least one strike against um, the brethren. The other dissent, and the dissent that I really think is fantastic, is um, William O. Douglas. He he um, says that federal baseball is a derelict in the stream of the law, and he and he drops a footnote in his opinion saying he regrets joining Tulson. I think he's the only justice um, on the court from Tulson, and um, he says he regrets joining. Um, Toolson, and that congressional inaction is a bad guy, um, because uh, is a bad guy because um, Congress hasn't expressly exempted baseball or any other sport, and the only exemption that we have um, is is for broadcasting, and that's the Sports Broadcasting Act. And he says, hey, this is the Supreme Court's mistake, and the mistake was really Toulson, not federal baseball, and we should fix it. Um, so those are the opinions, and, and I, I just want to briefly kind of add. A couple of postscripts. Well, how if Kurt Flood lost five to three on a ridiculous opinion by Harry Blackman, did Kurt Flood get did Major League Baseball get free agency? Well, as I said, um in 1970 during the trial, when MLB says we can be reasonable and they throw the players a bone by giving them grievance arbitration, well, that becomes um for the players the kind of silver bullet. Um and the first free agent and most people forget this was catfish hunter um catfish hunter became a free agent because um the oakland a's owner charlie finley had breached his contract by not um setting up half of the contract um as an annuity and an imbatra- independent arbitrator um peter Seitz, um ruled that um finley was in breach and the remedy for that breach um was to make hunter a free agent and Hunter signs a multi-million dollar contract um, with the New York Yankees. I think it was 1.9 million. And that really opened up everybody's eyes to what Kurt was fighting for and the possibilities of free agency in Major League Baseball and all of professional sports because of what Hunter, um, a great pitcher, got on the open market. A year later, two other players, two other pitchers, Andy Messersmith and Dave McNally, also file grievances they've done something called playing out their option year At the beginning of my talk I said the re- reserve clause um, says if we own you for this year and next year too well the um, Smith and McNally and, and other players that tried this before essentially played out that option year they played a season under their own contract old contracts right so um, they said okay if you own us for this year and next year too we're going to play next year without a contract and then we should be free agents. And Peter Seitz, who was still the arbitrator, the owners hadn't fired them, they could have, and they should have, um, because he had ruled against them in the Hunter case. He ruled um, that the reserve clause was only a one-year option and not a perpetual one, not a lifetime option. And that essentially ended the reserve system, ended and led to free agency because at that point the players and the owners got together and negotiated a free agency system um, in the next collective bargaining agreement. So Kurt's lawsuit, although a loss at the Supreme Court, was really, I think, a win for the players because they won grievance arbitration um, that led to free agency um, in 1975. What happened to Kurt? Well, we know a little bit. Now, um, the Ken Burns documentary um glosses over some of it, um, but Um, In 1976, um, he returned to the United States from Spain, where he had been self-exiled, drunk and destitute. From 1976 to 1986, um, Kurt had a really hard time. Um, He struggled um, to regain his sobriety in Oakland. He briefly announced games for the Oakland A's. Um, As a color commentator, that really didn't work out. But in 1986, he really got his life together. He um, married a former girlfriend, the actress um, Judy Pace. Um, who's pictured second to the left here. A big moment for Kurt came during the 1994 baseball strike um, when um, he appeared at a meeting in Atlanta um, of um, the players and received a standing ovation. And that was really the first time um, the union had publicly ad- acknowledged um, what Kurt had done for them. And then, of course, he makes that star turn in Ken Burns' baseball documentary that you listen to. And um. The people who were in that documentary and Burns himself um, had an event at the White House and Kurt um, got to meet um, President and Mrs. Clinton. And and you see their picture here um, with Bill Clinton in the middle and and Hillary Clinton to his right. I just point out, like, look how young they look. It's kind of remarkable um, how young the Clintons are in that in that photograph. But sadly, um, when Kurt has finally started to receive his due um, in 94, um, he died of throat cancer um, in 1997, and um, um, but um, Kurt's story kind of continues here, and where it continues is after the baseball strike. Um, the union got what they thought was a concession from Major League Baseball. Um, they got um, so what they called the Kurt Flood Act of 1998. It's really unfortunate. Um, it's um, name that it removed the exemption baseballs exemption from the antitrust laws as it relates um, to um, employment issues of major league players. And and that's um, really a nothing burger because um, the Supreme Court had ruled in 1996 in a case called Brown versus Pro Football Inc. that unions cannot be unionized and, and, and sue under the antitrust laws. So as long as the MLBPA exists, they can't sue under the antitrust laws. So that's a nothing burger. What the players got nothing and what the owners got is a laundry list of what the Curt Flood Act didn't cover, which includes the minor leagues, the draft, franchise relocation, umpires, the Sports Broadcasting Act. Basically, it got an affirmation in Congress um, of the antitrust exemption and um, the union got nothing and lost a ton. It was a huge strategic mistake um, by the Major League Baseball Players Association, um, and it really hurt minor league players um, who um, were non-unionized, so they didn't have a protection of the union, um, and they were now, according to this law, um, exempt from suing under um, the antitrust laws based on the Curt Flood Act. Last thing, and then I'll turn it over to Greg, um, will Flood v. Coon be overruled? Um, Flood v. Coon is an embarrassing decision. The court almost never cites it in a positive light, I mean, a recent antitrust case about the amateurism rules of the NCAA and NCAA versus Alston, the court unanimously, the great thing about antitrust cases is there's really a lack of political valence in these cases. As you saw from Kurt's case, um, liberal and conservative justices were all over the map. That's true also today, 9 nothing. They ruled that the NCAA's amateurism rules violated the Sherman Act. But in that majority opinion by Neil Gorsuch, who is an expert on antitrust law and used to teach it, basically put MLB on notice about how aberrational and unsupported Flood v. Kuhn is. There is bipartisan support in Congress um, to end baseball's antitrust exemption. Also, this is a, a, you know, I know MLB's monopoly is strong and, and their lobbying efforts in congress is super strong but MLB is on the run um they uh, allowed minor leaguers just recently to unionize they the the players voted to unionize and then rather than sort of contest it um in the N- NLRB um the court the M- the major league baseball um agreed to allow the minor leaguers to unionize because they want the benefit of that labor exemption. I think they're worried about um, the antitrust exemption from Tulson going away. Um, this is a Supreme Court, as most of you know, um, that is not real concerned with following precedent. The only good argument in Flood versus Kuhn was stare decisis and following precedent. And you know, this 9 nothing decision in Alston should have sent shivers down the spine of Major League Baseball. There is a case pending in the lower courts about minor league teams. There was a contraction of minor league teams by Major League Baseball. One of those contracted teams, the Staten Island Yankees and a few others, sued Major League Baseball under the Sherman Act. That case is pending in the lower courts. And what I'll say about that is stay tuned, folks. I'll be really interested if the Supreme Court of the United States grant certiorari in that staten island yankees case i i think there's a very good chance that flood versus coon could be overruled Uh, greg um, i hope i haven't gone on for too long but uh fire away wow that's incredible
4: uh and i am delighted on so many fronts personal as well as professional to get a master's class in uh baseball as um i mentioned uh, i'll i'll be uh put myself on the stake here a little bit. When I went mentioned to you last night, 1973, I wrote my senior thesis on the Flood versus Kuhn case and it, anticipating from an economic plan what would happen to baseball should the reserve clause be ended. And I was so wrong, so that's why I'm not sharing it in this booklet. But And so uh, it's great for me to to be corrected on so many fronts by you Brad, and of particular interest, uh, the follow-up luncheon speaker uh, is the John Dandys. John is the president of Bison's uh, Rich Products Sports Entertainment. That's they own the Buffalo Bison's, and he's actively interested in what's going on in Congress right now, uh, as they are reviewing this whole antitrust exemption. And of course, the last sentence you had was talking about the Staten Island Yankees, which was a member of the New York Penn League of uh, of which Jamestown team was a part for so so many years. so you uh, you brought it really home, really home and I'll uh, report whatever John uh, talks about during lunch. In fact, why don't you that's probably a segue to help me is what is going on in Congress right now? Have you followed any of the congressional hearings uh, so far as the antitrust exemption?
5: No, I haven't. I have, and I have to be honest. I I I know there are even people on this call who 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 know more about this than I do. I do know there's support on both sides of the aisle. Um, a co-sponsored bill by Republicans and Democrats, and and you know, 20 years ago that would be so what. But I think you know, anytime you get Republicans and Democrats a- agreeing on on something. Um, it, it's kind of remarkable today, um, and there's also bipartisan support. I think in in general, Greg, um, uh, for um, that monopoly is bad, um, particularly when it comes to big tech. If you think about the bipartisan outrage about big tech and and the the need to hold big tech's um, feet to the fire, um, in terms of the antitrust laws, that doesn't bode well um, for for Major League Baseball either, right? I just think. Um, you know, I think there's a sense on both sides of the aisle that monopoly is bad. Now, I, I, let me just say that there there is an, a major league team or a minor league team in so many of these senators and congressmen's districts, and that their lobbying shop, MLB's lobbying shop, is unparalleled, and that a lot of arms will be twisted, and, and um, I think it's going to be a hot, a heavy lift for Congress to do the work to. Um, remove baseball's exemption um through through legislation. So I'm not optimistic on that front. I'm actually more optimistic that the Supreme Court will bury um Toulson and Flood v Kuhn since it was their mess. So I I, I think that in this case um, we we've got a better chance. Um even um, again I, I don't think it matters that this is a conservative court. I I think um justices like Neil Gorsuch um and And Brett Kavanaugh are outraged um, about, you know, abuses of monopoly power in this sort of way, you know, in the past toward minor leaguers and and most recently um, toward minor league teams and contraction. And and, um, that baseball, um, I think this exemption has shown what happens when a monopolist has an exemption and how they abuse that power.
4: Could you envision what happens to organized baseball the minute either the Supreme Court or Congress passes legislation which eliminates the antitrust exemption, what would change?
3: It it
5: would force baseball to get its act together, to innovate, and to look more like the NBA, and to have a kind of, I'm not going to mince words, to have a commissioner who's kind of forward thinking about how to grow the game, to realize that it's not an us-them mentality right? And to not make comments denigrating the World Series trophy or denigrating um, or or saying that minor leaguers are making a minimum wage when they're not. And to realize like Adam Silver does in the NBA, that he's involved in a partnership with the players and and that he needs to figure out how to grow the game. It just may force MLB to be less of a dinosaur and and to be more of an innovator and put it on the same playing field um, as other professional sports.
4: And just for the audience, everybody needs to know that this guy was a sports writer, so it's not like he's some academic sitting down in Georgetown. He cut his teeth as a sports writer in Baltimore as a Baltimore Orioles fan, and in fact, he covered the most famous game in Baltimore Orioles history for the a, a, a local newspaper. You want to briefly talk about that in your you 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 you, you blew right by that in the biography.
5: Uh, I, I hear you. I, I wouldn't say Ripken. I was um, covering for the Baltimore Sun um, when Cal Ripken broke Lou Gehrig's um, record on twenty-one thirty-one. And uh, Greg, I know you have the date on the tip of your tongue. I don't. December 6,
4: 1995.
5: I was there that day and I was a young sports writer with the Baltimore Sun. I don't think that's the greatest day in oral history. I'd take the 83 World Series or the 70 World Series with Brooks Robinson um, either day. Um, but... That's the kind of fan aspect in me, but it was certainly a high watermark for the franchise and super memorable. But, you know, I got there out of college in 94 and the baseball strike hit and I sort of started educating myself about the history of antitrust and labor um, in in, um, professional baseball. And I was kind of embarrassed as a sports writer about how little I knew about Kurt Flood, that here I was covering baseball for a major newspaper and didn't really understand what Kurt had done. And I really that first year as a reporter saw Kurt's story as a great one-man takes on the establishment story. Um, and I just read um, Anthony Lewis' amazing book, Gideon's Trumpet, and really which is about Clarence Earl Gideon, um, who didn't have counsel and was convicted of a you know of a burglary in a pool hall in Florida and was indigent. And, and Clarence Earl Gideon wins based on a handwritten petition to the United States Supreme Court. I mean, a very famous um, decision establishing a right to counsel in all felony cases. Um, I saw Kurt's story way back then as baseball's Gideon's trumpet. And even though Kurt lost at the Supreme Court, I really think he won. I um, mean He really raised a way, not just public awareness about just how unlevel that playing field is, to borrow the title uh, of your program today, between the owners and the players. And just by going on Howard Cosell and saying a well-paid slave um, is nonetheless a slave. And Cosell, of course, was ESPN, Fox, CBS, and, and every other network rolled into one back then, right, in terms of power. To say that really opened people's eyes to the inequities in the game. And then to force the union to say that, hey, not the union, I'm sorry, the league to say, um, hey, this is a labor issue, not an antitrust issue. We can be reasonable. I, I just want to point out in the next basic agreement, they get some really important things in 1973. The two concessions they get in 73, even after they've quote unquote lost in the Supreme Court, they get first they get something that was at the time was called the Kirk Flood Rule. And today we know it as 10 and 5 rule. And that is um, with ten years of major league service time and five years with the same team that you can veto any trade. That rule still exists today, and um, and and lots of players have exercised it. The last um, member of the Orioles that exercised it was Adam Jones, their kind of team leader and star um, outfielder, and and he as the Orioles were in decline, they tried to trade Adam Jones, and he said, "No, I'm exercising my ten and five rule rights," And, and um. You know, these rights have to be waived all the time, and that's all because of Curt Flood. And and then the second major concession in that 73 basic agreement, after MLB has argued this is a labor issue, is salary arbitration, which is after three years of major league service time, the players and the owners go to salary arbitration. And so years, you know, four through six, these, um, they have salary arbitration that the owners are still regretting giving the players salary arbitration. Right, and and again, that's a major gain from Kurt Flood. That's still baked into the current collective bargaining agreement, as is the ten and five rule. And and Kurt Flood deserves credit for both of those, which was why they named the ten and five rule at the time the Kurt Flood rule.
4: Well, I just want to say, Brad, you deserve a lot of credit for bringing to our attention here for all those publicly in, pers- in person and those who are many watching online. Uh, this great, great uh, story, uh, though it's fifty years later from the Supreme Court case, it is so relevant today, uh, especially in the wild world of minor leagues, of which our world is a part here.
5: Yeah, well, well, I appreciate that. I, and one other thing I just wanted to mention, Greg, was you brought up the sort of and even the the announcer in the case in the in the Ken Burns documentary brought up that that the the best teams will get all the best players in the Worst teams will get all all the all the scrubs. And uh, first of all, I don't think that's true today. Um, But but as I told you last night, Greg, when we were talking, Bowie Kuhn was um, really not a popular commissioner. And he was described um, by Charlie Finley as a stuffed shirt. um, And he he called him um, a village idiot. Um, Those are Charlie Finley's words, not mine. But Kuhn was so fixated on um, the end of the reserve clause as, as the end of the game. Um, that he didn't really see the train coming, and the the train that was coming and that ran him over uh, was the beginning of of cable television. And once um, Ted Turner starts TBS and and WGN starts in in Chicago, um, the train has left the station, right uh, on cable television. And these um and the inequities between big market and tell and small market teams are really about these local television rights. And these um cable stations like Nessen, um like um the yes network um that that just make the Yankees and the Red Sox and the Cubs and the Braves and the Dodgers, they have so much more cash at their disposal um to spend on player development and to spend on 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 ball players and and that's what I think really makes MLB different than the NFL, where the NFL's sharing all their money equally. but you know, Kuhn couldn't even get a more equitable distribution of that cable money because he just wasn't fixated. He wasn't he didn't see its impact on how local the disparity on local television revenue could create a have and have not system um, in MLB. And, and that's something, again, for a future commissioner to fix as we move away from cable television and as we move into streaming and, and, and soon cable television will be a dinosaur much like network TV. And then MLB has an opportunity to kind of reinvent itself. And that's what I mean by without an exemption. Maybe MLB will start to innovate and really rethink its economic model in a a world where um, streaming is everything.
4: Well, enjoy the playoffs via streaming, Brad Snyder. And uh, thank you very much for all your time.
5: Thank you. I appreciate it, Greg.
4: And I personally thank you so much for making the extraordinary effort. I know that pounding down some tea and whatever else you had to take on to get through this today uh, was above and beyond. And we really appreciate
5: it. It's my my pleasure, Greg. Next time, I just want to come to the Jackson Center in person. So thanks so much.
4: We'll make that a reality. All all right. Take care. Bye-bye.
0: You have been listening to Liberty Under Law, the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center. Our podcast is edited by Connor Keenan. Original theme music for Liberty Under Law by Bryson Barnes. I'm Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center and your host. Content for this episode was drawn from a program hosted by the Jackson Center, whose mission is to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson. United States Supreme Court Justice, and Chief United States Prosecutor for the International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg. We envision a world where the universal principles of equality, fairness, and justice prevail. As a nonprofit organization, the Jackson Center's mission is made possible in great part through philanthropic gifts. To learn more about the Jackson Center, our programming, and how you can support our mission, please visit www.roberthjackson.org. You can connect with us and ask questions of our guests through our website. We're also on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, remember to subscribe and share with your friends.